gravity working for them on that trip. They used the gravity of the moon to kind of slingshot the spacecraft to go back toward the earth. And then they used the gravity of the earth to surf their way back home in order to conserve energy on board for the life support of those athletes, of those astronauts. Gravity is a powerful force. Sir Isaac Newton, years ago, did a lot of early writing on that subject. And he said that the greater an object's mass in space, the greater the gravitational pull that object had. The greater an object's mass, the greater gravitational pull it will have. The earth has greater gravitational pull than the moon. The sun has greater gravitational pull than either the earth or the moon. Every day, our world is affected by the gravity of the moon. The moon's gravity creates tidal action on earth. The high tides are created by the gravity of the moon. The moon's gravity tends to pull water toward it. And then the centrifugal force of the earth's rotation pulls it back. Thus, we get the high tide and low tide. Now you know. Gravity in the physical world is analogous to gravity in the spiritual world. There are bodies of mass in our lives that are pushing and pulling on us all the time. And Jesus told stories to talk about these things. In the spiritual world, you choose which body is going to have the biggest pull in your life by your attitude, by your actions, by your talk, by your choices, your decisions. You choose whether the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of God has a greater gravitational pull on your life. And Jesus told stories to illustrate that pull. Now, for the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of the parables of Jesus. So let's talk about parables. There's an insert in your bulletin if you want to follow along with us today. But parables are simple stories, but not always easy to understand. I want to give you four keys for unlocking the parables. Number one, a parable argues for a truth, a truth. Now, we kind of know from Sunday school The definition of a parable. It's kind of a universal sort of thing. A parable is an earthly story, and you can probably fill in the blanks, can't you? With a heavenly meaning. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. One of the earliest parables was Nathan's parable. After David committed adultery with Bathsheba, a few months later, the prophet Nathan shows up. And just tells David a story. A story about two men. One rich, filthy rich. And one poor. The rich man had everything. He had lands and houses and livestock. He had everything. But the poor man had only one little lamb. Well, the rich man had a guest, Nathan said. But rather than take any of his animals and slaughter them and feed his guest, the rich man took the one little ewe lamb 
owned by that poor man. And David became so upset in that story that he said about that rich man, that man deserves to die. When Nathan finished that story, David was slapped in the face with conviction. And he repented of his adultery with Bathsheba because of that simple story about a poor man and a sheep. Second, a parable can be very uncomfortable because it's designed to bring clarity and conviction. These parables are designed to wake us up. Now, if you study the parables and your toes don't get stepped on, your preacher ain't doing it right. When Jesus taught in parables, people would get so upset with him, so angry with him that they'd want to kill him. He would tell these simple stories, and the truth would become so apparent and convicting that if you weren't willing to submit, you get mad. So the parable was designed to cut through the mush in our brain and slap us with the truth. And you can take the truth, you can ignore it, you can dismiss it, but parables of Jesus are not bedtime stories. They are arguments to convict you with the truth. Third, a parable is an intentional piece of work to bring about life change. Parables are not short stories. They are not art. They are devices to bring about life change in us. They call people to trade the pull of one world for the pull of another. And fourth, a parable has a specific mission To make one point. If you try to make everything in the parable represent something, you'll get lost somewhere in the story. I want us to look at uh, two little little parables that really go hand in hand from Matthew the 13th chapter, verse 44 through 46. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and bought it. A few years ago, a man from New Jersey found a shiny object in his front yard near the highway. Well, he was really intrigued by this metal object, this heavy, oblong object that he thought had probably fallen off of a a car or a truck going by. The man liked the way that it looked. And so he brought it into his garage, and he spray-painted it silver. And then he attached it to the front of his car. Well, eventually somebody noticed his unusual hood ornament. It turned out to be a live grenade from a nearby military base. Unwittingly, this guy was driving around with a bomb attached to the front of his car. You know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. One man's collectible is another man's bomb. Now, there are three truths that these treasures teach. 
Number one, the kingdom of heaven is a treasure and you ought to value it. The kingdom of heaven is a treasure. You ought to value it. Now, in the case of these two individuals, uh, they both sold what they had, sold out, and they bought it. But everything is negotiable. Did you hear about the attorney who was duck hunting in South Georgia, and he shot a duck, and it fell, and it fell across the fence from where he was in in a field? Well... The lawyer was starting to climb the fence when an old farmer drove up in his tractor and said, Son, where are you going there? The lawyer said, Well, I shot this duck and I'm crossing the fence to get it. The farmer said, No, 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 I don't think so. That duck's on my property. That is trespassing. And the young lawyer said, Don't mess with me, old man. I'm a lawyer from Atlanta. I'm a part of a big law firm in Atlanta. You mess with me, I'll have that tractor. I'll have that farm. Everything you own. The old man said, nah, we don't solve problems like that in the South. We use the three-kick rule. The lawyer said, the three-kick rule? What is the three-kick rule? He said, well, I kick you three times, and then you kick me three times, and whoever wins is right. Well, the lawyer looked at the spindly little old farmer, and he said, all right, I'll take you on. The farmer got off of the tractor, and for the first time, the lawyer noticed the steel-toed boots that the old farmer was wearing. That old man, with his first kick, kicked that lawyer in the stomach and doubled him over. The next kick, he caught him under the collarbone and just flipped him back, completely did a somersault. The next kick, the third kick, the farmer kicked him in the ribs And the lawyer thought he was going to pass out. But he had endured three kicks. Somehow the lawyer managed to get himself up off of the ground. And he said, okay, old man, it's my turn. And the farmer said, nah, you can have the duck. (laughs) You know, everything is negotiable. Some things are not worth negotiating, though. But some are. Now, this story about a buried treasure would not be all that uncommon in Jesus' day. When Jesus told this parable, people would probably say, I heard of that happening. You see, in Jesus' day, they had no banks. People hid money in the ground, in a hole in the ground on their property. There were wars over land then, just as there are now. Nations conquering land and running people off. And you could literally own a piece of land that had treasure buried on it for 100 years. Now, there's no ethical issue here. A guy finds a treasure in a field, but instead of stealing it, he buys the land. He sells everything he had to buy it. And Jesus describes the kingdom of God in this way. As a priceless, life-changing treasure. Not just a belief system, not a code of conduct, not just a doctrine. He said, it's a treasure. And Jesus said, if you're shrewd, if you are wise, if you're awake, you will evaluate his kingdom of that worth. Now, as I describe this treasure, some people hear that and say, that's right. That's true. But some of you in the audience today are thinking, what? 
the church a treasure? I don't get it. But both of those reactions are occurring in a room today right here. The gravity of this world. The gravity of the kingdom of God. You see, some of the people in this room, you eat, you sleep, you're all about the kingdom of God. You're serving in a ministry, you're involved, you are all in. And it's easy to tell. It's easy to tell that. But some get ticked off as the preacher talks about giving. Or your Sunday school teacher steps on your toes. Now, what does that say about you if what Jesus says is a treasure you value at nothing? What does it say about you when the most influential person in the world says something is a treasure and to you it's nothing? That is the confrontational nature of these parables. The parables are in your face. And so the question today and in the coming Sundays as we talk together, is this. Are you experiencing the gravitational pull of God in your life? In the model prayer, Jesus told the disciples how to pray. And he, some, one of the things he said to pray, he said, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus said... We ought to pray that way. That, that what we have here on earth would resemble what God has in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now in Matthew the 11th chapter, Jesus said something pretty remote. In Matthew the 11th chapter, verse 12, Jesus said, From the days of John the Baptist until now... The kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. I like that. Jesus said, from the, king, from the days of John the Baptist, the kingdom of God has been advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. God's kingdom is advancing. It's advancing today. You see, this world is moving in a direction toward a certain day. This kingdom is advancing, and there will be a day that God has appointed. 2 Peter, the third chapter, verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by the fire and the earth, and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Good question, isn't it? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. The second truth that I want us to see is the kingdom of God is a discovery and we ought to recognize it. The kingdom of God is a discovery and we ought to recognize it. I heard about a teenager who was preparing for a big date and he went to a candy store 
And he said, I need three boxes of candy, he said to the, to the clerk. $5 box, a $10 box, $20 box. The salesman said, well, why do you need three boxes? He said, well, I have a big day tonight, and here's my plan. When I take her to the door to say goodnight, if she gives me a handshake, she gets a $5 box. If she gives me a hug, she gets a $10 box. But if she gives me a hug and a kiss, she gets a $20 box of candy. Well, he purchased all three boxes. He went home. That night, he went to pick up his date, and he was invited in to have supper with the girl's family. And right as they sat down for supper, the father said, Son, would you lead in prayer for the meal? And the boy prayed the longest, most passionate prayer you've ever heard. And when he was done praying, his girlfriend leaned over and said, I didn't know you were so spiritual. And he said, and I didn't know your daddy owned a candy store. <laughs> you know, when, when we make a big discovery, it changes our perspective, doesn't it? When we make a big discovery, it changes things about us. And one of the values of this parable is that it helps us to recognize where we are. Notice in both of these stories, they recognized that they could be enriched by something that they did not have. They saw treasure ahead of them. And in both of these cases, the individuals were willing to make changes, changes in their lifestyle. Changes in their finances. Changes in their habits. Whatever it takes to change and acquire that treasure. Now the parables hinge on the difference. What difference is there? Well, in the first parable, the man kind of stumbled on the treasure. In the second, the person had been searching. And people find the kingdom of God in both ways. I would say in this audience here, some of you were just sort of born into it. Some of you just uh, naturally uh, came to know the Lord because of your family or because of how you were raised. But there are others of you who came to some point in your life where you started to search. And you searched your way. You studied your way into the kingdom of God. Some of you have been part of a church. and That church, you started trying to match up what they were practicing with the scriptures. And you couldn't do that. So you started reading and studying deeper. And you found your way here. Joshua Bell emerged from the metro in Washington, D.C., and positioned himself against a wall near a trash basket. By most measures, Joshua Bell was nondescript. A youngish white man in jeans, long t-shirt, a Washington Nationals baseball cap. From a small case, he removed a violin and he placed the open case at his feet, threw in a few dollars and some change for seed money, and he began to play. And for the next 45 minutes... In the D.C. Metro, on January the 12th, 2007, Bell played Mozart and Schubert and other composers as over a thousand people streamed by, most hardly taking notice. 
If they would have, they might have recognized this young man as the world-famous violinist that he was. And they might have noticed that the violin that he was playing was a rare Stradivari worth over $3 million. It was all part of a project arranged by the Washington Post, an experiment in context, perception, and priorities. Just three days earlier, Joshua Bell had sold out the Boston Symphony Hall with most tickets going for $100. But in the subway, Bell garnered $32 from 72 people who stopped long enough to give a donation. See, some treasures we pass by, we don't even see. And Jesus wants us to understand that this is a treasure to value. That this is a treasure to value. That this is a discovery to recognize. But third, the kingdom of God is an opportunity that you ought to act on. It's an opportunity and you ought to act on it. And one of the ways that you who are part of this church act on it is to participate in a ministry fair where you say, I'm going to be more than a bystander. I'm going to be more than a spectator in the church. I am going to be a participant. I am all in. I believe in what's happening at this place. And I'm going to give my life to serve God here to the best of my ability. You might see this grill over here. Uh, Do you know what this is? Just about all of you know, don't you? A George Foreman grill. You know it by name. The grill was developed by the Salton Incorporated Company back in 1996. It was a household appliance company that wanted to market a grill, this grill, and a blender. So they looked for a high-profile athlete to market this grill. And uh, you know who they chose, except that's not who they chose. Because if you guessed George Foreman as their first choice, you would be wrong. They actually chose a high-profile athlete from Augusta, Georgia, named Hulk Hogan. And they called the Hulk on a Friday, and they asked him, we want you to market this blender. Now, according to Wikipedia, they would pay the pitch man $2.73 per grill. Every grill that sold, their pitch man would get $2.73. Do you know how many they sold? Well, in the first 10 years, they sold a hundred million of those grills. That's $273 million for their pitch man. But Hulk Hogan couldn't decide. He, over the weekend, hedged, put down the pros and the cons. He waited. He thought. And on Monday, he called back and he said, I'll take it. I'll take the job. They said, too late. We got George Foreman. But they said, we've got this great blender, the Hulk Hogan Thunder Blender. They sold 200,000 of them. Do any of you have a Hulk Hogan Thunder Blender? Nobody's got one of those. Now, Hulk Hogan made a half million dollars, but the Hulk gave away 
$272 million because he didn't act quickly. If you reject the gravitational pull of the kingdom, it won't be like Hulk Hogan. They replaced him. There's nobody that can replace you. Nobody's going to take your place. Your life will go on, but without the richness and the fullness that the treasure promises. Years ago, Dr. George Truitt, the preacher of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, was a guest in the home of a, an oil man, a rich oil man. And after supper, the oil man took Dr. Truett up on the roof and he pointed out toward a field full of oil rigs. And he said, Dr. Truett, I came to America 25 years ago, penniless. And now I own everything in that direction as far as you can see. They turned in the opposite direction, fields of waving grain. And he said, Dr. Truett, I own in that direction, as far as you can see, everything. They turned in another direction, fields full of cattle. And he said, Dr. Truett, I own everything in that direction too. They turned in the other direction, forests. And he said, I own everything in that direction. The man kind of waited for the preacher to be impressed, but Truett laid his hand on the oil man's shoulders and said, pointing upward, how much do you own in that direction? That's the key, isn't it? Because it doesn't matter what you have because you're going to die. Every one of us. And what matters is the gravitational pull of the kingdom of God in your life. Let's stand together and let's pray. Our Father in God, we thank you for the opportunity we have this day to participate in worship, to sing, to commune together, to worship to participate in the fellowship of your church. And Lord, we pray that every one of us, as we leave this place, can understand and know this gravitational pull that you exhibit, and that every one of us is, is on board and surrendering to that pull as you guide us through life. Lord, we pray that if there's someone here who is not, that you would nudge them, not let them rest until they surrender to you and your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Today, if you've not accepted Christ as your